Sponsorship for this KQED live audio stream comes from Brevo, a customer relationship management platform that can help engage with clients across email, SMS, WhatsApp, and more. For more information, visit brevo.com. That's brevo.com. Hello and welcome to Smart Mouth, where we bring you the digest of the week's news and try to sound smart about it. I'm Queena Kim here with Dan Brecky, editor of KQED's blog, News Fix. Let's do it again. And Joshua Johnson, KQED's morning newscaster. Nowhere I'd rather be, Queena. All right, so I guess I'm going to start today. Uh, my story is about Ezell Ford. Just a few days after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson in L.A., police officers shot and killed the 25-year-old Ford. He was um, mentally ill, African-American, and this sparked big protests in L.A. So uh, I think it was yesterday. Now I'm forgetting. But this week, a five-member civilian panel that oversees the Los Angeles Police Department found that uh, one of the officers was wrong when he fatally shot Ford. This decision came right after the LAPD had its own inverse, uh, internal investigation and found something uh, found that the shooting was justified. What's really interesting about this, and I'm really just riffing off an L.A. Times story that did a really wonderful analysis on this, is that the different way in which the commission uh, broke, or how do I say this? How the commission broke with tradition in terms of determining innocence or guilt, or, you know, or justified or non-justified shooting. So while, very, very, very simply put, while the internal review really looked at that very fine moment when uh, Ford allegedly reached for the gun, the cops felt the need to defend themselves and so shot him, the commission broadened it out to look at whether the stop was justified, whether they should have stopped him in the first place, and in some sense, whether they would have whether they created a situation in which this shooting happened and whether that situation that they created was justified. And it's really interesting that they're starting to expand this out a little bit more. Yeah, and this is something I think we saw uh, most notably recently in the Freddie Gray death. Uh, He suffered fatal injuries in police custody, that we know. Uh, Exactly how those injuries were suffered, uh, we don't yet know. But um, let's go back and look at the entire process that led to him being detained in the first place. And what it comes down to is, really, he gave he gave an officer a funny look, and that led to a chase and his detention, uh, arrest, and death. I think this also speaks to the way that a number of people, particularly in black communities around the country, have been asking the community to review these police-involved incidents. I mean, it's that whole thing of, you know, I wasn't doing nothing and you pulled me over and I'm just walking. And that's that's kind of, it feels to me, mm-hmm. at the heart of this whole matter. I, I understand that the California Supreme Court recently decided that investigators need to consider the initial decisions of officers in terms of whether they cause confrontation, confrontations like this. So it seems like L.A.'s police commission is... Not only following what the state has mandated that they do, but also kind of answering that concern about just being, you know, not only guilty before proven innocent, but suspicious before proven to be any trouble at all. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that but there is a concern on the other side, and that's come up in both Baltimore in the Freddie Gray Gray case, the aftermath of that, and in Los Angeles, where I'm just looking at the L.A. Times story that you may have seen yourself that's discussing 
how how different this uh, ruling was down there in the Azell Ford case. And they quote somebody from the uh, president of the police union who says they, uh, police officers, feel the police commission abandoned them for a suspect who basically tried to take an officer's gun. They're scared. They're worried. What is an officer supposed to do? It's a legitimate question. And there have been suggestions in Baltimore that police have responded to the, um, I mean, there there have been criminal charges brought, of course, but that they've responded to that by uh, withdrawing service in some areas. Now, that's not proven, but, um, you know, I, I think one thing we don't give enough attention to is the fact that we're sending officers out there into a, an environment that is, there is almost like a, a siege out there in terms of the number of weapons uh, on the street. They go out there knowing that, and they also know that the way our society works, the way the Second Amendment is interpreted, um, basically there are going to be more and more guns out there, and they have to worry about that. They don't know what they're going up against. Uh, That argument isn't really working for me anymore. I I totally hear it, but I feel like it's separate from what's happening right now in the conversation, which is I totally hear that argument, and I think it's true. So let's hold that on one part. Like, you know, that can be true, right? Right. But I also feel like what's been what we've been seeing, at least in these, you know, citizen videos, is that, um, yes, that's true. They go into situations like, you know, that are volatile. These neighborhoods are dangerous. On the other hand, quite often it appears that they create these situations. And the most obvious one is with the pool incident. Right. I mean, it's, it's the one in Texas. That's exactly. Been, yeah. Where, where uh, the young girl. Uh, 14 or 15 years old, you know, was having a pool party, was slammed to the floor. Cop takes out the gun when I think it was pretty clear to everybody that wasn't a dangerous situation with guns. Like, Well, you know, and I think that kind of speaks to the need for or, or at least the push among some governments to train officers better in crisis intervention. You know, San Mateo County has been stepping up its training, CIT training, for people in various levels of first response to prevent these kinds of things. And there's an argument to be made. I don't know if I buy it in every situation. I do kind of, I mean, Dan, I totally see what you're saying. In some situations, it's just flat out dangerous. The the counter-argument, I think, is that if the officer had not stepped to that girl in McKinney, maybe the way he did, that things would have been different. The counter-argument to that is he had apparently been dealing with some crazy calls before he rolled up on them that were far worse, like a suicide call. And it just he had been having a really nutty day. Well, and they're like, okay, they're go to the pool saying, party. Yeah. And so it's, it's this balance of like, and I don't know what the answer is because I'm not in law enforcement, but it's this balance of how do you steal yourself for the danger on the street but make sure that you presume people are innocent until they're guilty. I don't know what the what the balance well, is. I, I guess I, what I, I'm saying is like I feel like it's a it's a little bit of a false argument. Like I guess is that the counter argument to something like the pool? There are two seen, separate issues we've in my seen head. W- too many indefensible cases. I mean, uh Officer Slager there in North Charleston is charged with murder now for shooting Walter Scott. Is that uh, the guy who ran away and he, yeah. shot, yeah, he yeah, was right. shot in the back right. and the guy basically emptied his gun. And then it looks looks like looks like from the video that he tried to plant evidence. Uh, so there's no defense for things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I what I no, am I talking about is talking that about. we how I mean, I think we have to bear some responsibility as a society for creating a situation where how could these folks, these police officers not be on a hair trigger when they know that even the most innocuous incident, not the pool incident, by the way, but 
the the most innocuous incident can turn into something with a gun. So I, let's flip I'm that the, the other way, though. So the cops are saying, uh, you know, it was a dangerous neighborhood. Shootings go on here all the time. This is a very well-known corner where drug uh, dealers uh, hang out, gangs hang out, and therefore we, like, you know, it's a it's a very volatile situation. Could you flip that around with Izell Ford maybe and saying, I wasn't doing anything. Like, I, I've seen the cops bust heads here. Friends of mine have been illegally detained, uh, messed up by the cops. I've seen people shot for no reason or what he believes is no reason. And uh, I felt really like the two I, cops saw me totally. for no reason. They, I don't know exactly what happened. And well, I felt really in danger. Well, and so but, I went for their gun. All right. Well, I have something uh, police related to bring up. This week, the Berkeley Police Department came out with its report on its handling of the December 2014 uh, Black Lives Matter protests uh, that started in Berkeley uh, the night of December 6th and, uh, and then continued for in pretty intense form for several days afterward. And there were a couple surprising things in, this, uh, in the release of documents around this report. One was the uh, police tactical directive said one thing the officers should try to do with the crowd was to get them running. And apparently, uh, at the same time, they were supposed to be on the uh, lookout for agitators who might be trying to split off or perhaps run from the main body of protesters and create trouble. So those seem like paradoxical pieces of advice. Another thing that came out was that the Berkeley police, who very early on started to deploy crowd control devices like smoke, and tear gas and uh, what they call less lethal munitions, like a, a form of rubber bullets, I think, in this case. They, they, started, they broke those out pretty early in the night, and by the end of the evening, they had used so much that they had exhausted, virtually exhausted their supply and had to go begging to uh, uh, neighboring agencies for, uh, to, to re-up their supply while um, they waited for their vendors to get back to them with, uh, with new, new inventory. So... Here's the issue with this uh, with this report. I mean, there was a lot of rough stuff on the streets. Um, you know, another tactical order you see in this in these documents is that police were instructed to keep all protesters at least at arm's length away to preserve a personal safety zone for the officers. Berkeley police issue, uh, released video showing how some of this was actually working out. Now, we know that people were getting jabbed and hit by batons up near the University of California. That included press photographers. Um, in, at the beginning of the demonstration, before things started to really break loose, the way this looks is uh, the officers were just shoving anybody who got, you know, who they felt was getting too close, whether the person was looking or not. And in one case... And what seemed to touch off the first little melee with people in the crowd throwing stuff at the cops, and that is, is on video, it happened, is that they shoved a guy who had a dog behind him, and the guy fell over his dog. And, you know, just the simple sight of seeing somebody hit the ground in what was already a tense situation was enough to start things going. And then it, it, things went really downhill from there. It seems like there's this constant mismatch between the people of Berkeley and the Berkeley Police Department when it comes to these protests. You know, that's one of the, you know, the Daily Cal, the student newspaper at UC Berkeley, got all the documents. And, you know, one of the people that they quote 
in the article is from a group called Berkeley Cop Watch, Andrea Pritchett. And she says there's leadership now that is out of step with the values of our community. It seems like the people of Berkeley are very much in favor of people exercising that part of the First Amendment to protest and assemble. But we have heard these cases, not just in the last few years, but the last few decades of police in Berkeley and at Cal who just don't seem to mirror that. And I don't know how you make those values mesh. Like, well, whose will do you bend to? I'm going to I'm going to put on my citizen of Berkeley hat now. No, uh, I, I think it's a good observation. There, the police chief over there, Michael Meehan, has uh, rubbed some people the wrong way. And and the media among those people, um, he famously sent uh, the department's public relations officer to a reporter's home at 1230 at night uh, to complain about a story that the reporter had had written. Which is exactly like that's like media relations 101 of what the way to make friends in the media. Really, I mean, I would think that is like some kind of advanced secret graduate course that he took, (laughs) like do exactly the opposite of what uh, common sense would tell you. You'd think. And and also having no impulse control, you know, I mean, yes, I'm angry about the story, but maybe I could wait till tomorrow to talk to the guy's editor about it. Anyway, so that's one thing he did. There another case where they, they sicked about 10 officers on uh, his sons, the chief's son's oh, right. uh, missing iPhone. iPhone. And that's and and he and others later communicated that that's just what the department does. They were just following uh, for department. every iPhone that's lost. Well, you know, I was there've been a lot wow, of burglaries in my department in my uh, neighborhood in North Berkeley recently and one thing I have noticed is there are not 10 officers responding to each of these burglaries uh, as as urgent as those uh, as my neighbors think those cases are that we haven't been flooded with police officers. But, you know, to get back to the, the serious point you're raising, listen, I don't think Berkeley's the only place, but, yes, it's a liberal community, uh, to say the very least. And uh, people, a lot of people were very unhappy with what they saw on the streets. The mayor, however, who's, a long, who's held office over there and been returned time and time again to a series of different offices, defended the police. He defended the police when uh, press organizations were complaining about having their photographers beaten up or or clubbed anyway and and some of their equipment broken. So, you know, there's there's no easy conclusion, Uh, although I will say the the one takeaway is the Police Review Commission is discussing this. They they met last night. They're going to meet again next week and perhaps the week after that to, to seeking more explanations from the police chief about what happened. All right, Josh. Mine has nothing to do with police, so you can take a deep Thankfully. breath. Thankfully. Yes, mine is about soft drinks and San Francisco's effort to get people drinking less of them. This week, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors passed three items related to sodas to try to get people to drink fewer of them. You may remember San Francisco tried to pass a soda tax last year. It got a majority of support from voters, but not enough to pass. It needed two-thirds. It got a little over half. This would take on sodas in three different ways. One, it would require warning labels on any new soda ads that went up around town, warning that sugar contributes to obesity and diabetes. Two, it would ban these ads from city property. And three, it would ban the city from buying sodas with its own money. It passed the Board of Supervisors this week. It's got to come back for final passage and has to go through Mayor Ed Lee. Currently, it seems like this is just going to happen. The trade group for bottlers in California, the California Beverage Association, CalBev, 
is obviously against this. They spoke at the board of commission board of supervisors meeting and basically said they were being scapegoated that, you know, the problem is not that, you know, soft drinks are sold. The problem is ultimately that people drink too many of them and that the city should partner with the industry on solutions to to try to mitigate this. That was not a persuasive enough argument for the supervisors. And now CalBev says it is considering a lawsuit on First Amendment grounds, more, most specifically probably over the health warning labels and whether or not they have to, to put these on their ads. Some of the supervisors, including Supervisor Scott Weiner, who proposed the warning labels, compared this to warning labels on tobacco, that there is a state interest in warning people about products that can have a deleterious effect on their health. I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure. Has, that, has there ever been a First Amendment challenge to those limits on the, uh, on the tobacco ads, the fact that they have to carry the Surgeon General's warning? Or, and, and I would imagine so. I don't know for sure, but I would, I, you know, if I had a day, chance to, back in the day, it, yeah, right? probably. It's, Although I'm not sure. Before I even I knew know. what the Supreme Court was. Exactly. Although I'm not sure it is, is as persuasive an argument because, you know, tobacco kills people who don't smoke. But soft drinks, you know, you're not going to get your sugar level go up when you're sitting next to somebody drinking a, a Coke Zero. It just doesn't work that way, partly because there's no sugar in Coke Zero. That's one of its fine selling qualities. But you know what I'm saying? It does, it's not quite as it's not pervasive in the way that, you know, cigarette smoke is pervasive. Well, I mean, isn't the concern that we are all footing the bill for diabetes. Yeah, that's for, for I mean, the public even, health system for right, sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. And even I guess one could argue our private insurance, right? Our premiums oh, yeah. go up because... And now insurers are trying to are offering more incentives to make premiums go down for people who take better care of themselves. So you're you're right about that. I think the counter argument from the beverage industry, and I can't speak for CalBev, but the counter arguments that have been made are several. One is that a lot of these soda companies are actually diversifying to where they also produce healthier products. You know, the same company that gives you Coca-Cola also sells Minute Maid orange juice. Indra Nui, who's the CEO of PepsiCo, has talked about dividing the company's products into good for you and fun for you. And they're trying to make a better corporate push to explain to people, you should not consume all of these products all the time in equal amounts. You should consume these products more often than these products. Doesn't mean you have to stop, but just keep them in balance. And then there's always the argument about the nanny state. I mean, when New York tried to regulate the sizes of sodas that you can get, people kind of pushed back against that like, I don't need you to tell me what sodas to drink. To me, that argument is always a little hypocritical because it it, it can't be that, like, you don't want the nanny state to tell you what to do, but if you get sick because you've done all these things, you want the nanny state to take care of you and foot the bill. I I guess I see that. I mean, it's... And it's part of that whole balance between, like, at what point are you fully responsible for your own health? I mean, there is a prevailing public interest in keeping people healthy. When you're healthy, you're productive, you're a better parent to your children, you're a better member of society, you're involved in the democracy. So there's a, there's a public interest in that. At the same time, you know, the presence of, soda, of sodas does not cause obesity and diabetes. The sugar you choose to consume makes you obese and diabetic. It's just like sodium in food. Sodium is a nutrient you need to live. The problem isn't sodium. It's that you consume too much of it. So well, this, But we, I think one of the that things that's sort of being missed a little bit, and it's a little tangential, is how much marketing money goes into getting well, young exactly kids right. and true. people to drink this stuff. You know, And I saw this interesting Facebook feed, tangentially related, but uh, 
I guess one of my friends, his daughter had made him for his Father's Day a little uh, McDonald's hamburger picture with like a drink, right, and French fries. And he's like, this is so weird because I've never, my, my daughter's never eaten McDonald's. There's just no way that we don't eat it as a family. But how would she even like, you know, how would this even enter her brain as something that I would want or that we would want? You but know? you know what's funny? You know what's funny is a lot of young people are eating less of this food. Yeah, that is like, true. Like fast food companies, McDonald's is losing its mind right now because revenues are down. A lot of soft drink sales are down. Health food has gone up. Organic product sales have gone up. A lot of people have begun to make this decision on their own. But isn't, couldn't you argue it's because of efforts like this and more public awareness and more public education? Public awareness, public education, yes. Government intervention, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know how far that is supposed to go before you know people are just supposed to say, okay, I'm not going to get the 128-ounce Coke today. I'm just going to get like a 32. All right. I would like to say something about this, but I, when, no, whenever, it, the, whenever this comes up, I always have in, in the back of my mind my 16-year-old self living in the very humid, hot summer Midwest you know, being out all afternoon, you know, playing whatever sports we were playing at the time and and really loving that 16-ounce bottle of Pepsi. And then a second one. And, and then, then a, a third, third one. one. Yeah. And then, well, you know, for, maybe there was a fourth one. But you know what? I think the difference <laughs> probably was when when you were having Pepsi, and I'm not going to presume how long that was, <laughs> it was probably made with real sugar. See, oh, when I go to Safeway. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, listen. The sugar, it's not like high fructose corn syrup. No, yeah, but you know what? There's functionally little difference. And, and you know, you mentioned orange juice before. If you guzzle orange juice this way, the sugar researchers will tell you it's just, it's just as, as bad. Much. Fructose, sucrose, mucrose, whatever gross you got. But you know I mean, what? It's not going to be good for you. But the thing about orange juice is it does have other nutritional value, right? It's not like, I mean, you might be getting sugar, but you're also getting vitamin C yes. and all other nutrients. It's not without yes. value. So just put vitamin C in your Pepsi. And you, you know what? <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. That might be a solution. You Don't think they it. haven't thought of it. <laughs> all right. Looks like we got to wrap it up. So um, lightning round. Lightning round. We talk about a couple things that delight us in the news that may not be on everybody's radar. Uh, I'll start. Poetry. There's a terrific piece on NPR's Morning Edition about our own, San Francisco's own, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, 96-year-old poet, still uh, sharp as hell, still raising hell. So that's something people should look up, and we'll have a link on our our blog post that goes with this uh, podcast. The other thing is we just had a Californian who is an archetype of the great modern California story, Juan Felipe Herrera, who was just uh, named Poet Laureate of the United States. And um, why is his story so great? Uh, Grew up uh, in the Central Valley, partly, uh, born in Fresno County, grew up in migrant camps uh, as his parents, uh, who were field workers, Mexican immigrant field workers, moved through the state, spent a lot of time in San Diego, a lot of time in San Francisco's Mission District, uh, big cultural and civil rights activist, great story, wonderful poet, and we're going to have something on the California Report, an interview with him on Friday. All right, Josh. Uh, yes and amen to Juan Felipe Herrera, definitely a story worth knowing. Uh, my story is happy birthday to the San Francisco Examiner. Friday is its oh, 150th. Wow. It survived. It survived. It was published on, first published on June 12, 1865, was originally the Daily Examiner. At the time, it was one of many 
pa- uh, one of a number of papers in San Francisco that supported the Confederacy in the Civil War, very pro-Confederacy, very pro-slavery, very anti-Lincoln. That changed after native San Franciscan William Randolph Hearst acquired the Examiner. It was the first paper in, in his 1887. Empire. In 1887. And his, do you know how his father got the paper? Uh, in a gambling contest of some kind. Ten points. He won it to settle a gambling debt. So happy birthday to the examiner, 150 years and still going. All right. I'm passing on my lightning round because we don't have enough time. So I'm going to say that's it for Smart Mouth, KQED's Digest of the Week's News. We had Dan Brecky, editor of KQED's blog News Fix with us, and Joshua Johnson, KQED's morning newscaster. And I'm Queenie Kim.